This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You can do an experiment on a digital twin. You think, ah, oh, maybe this drug may work, may not work. Okay, let's try it out on the digital twin. You know, you can't kill a digital twin. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a topic that sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, digital twins. Charles, I have to agree that today's topic does sound very futuristic. What we're talking about is this burgeoning technology that could one day let us create a virtual copy or simulation of a person using health data. Then you can take this digital twin and instead of using a real person, test it out to see how it reacts to certain medicine. Or you could even put this digital twin through a medical procedure to see how the body might react to it. Okay, so that's a big mouthful. We'll explain a little more as we get into it. We'll definitely break it all down for our listeners. And while it does sound very sci-fi, according to our first guest, it's not. It would really be the biggest change in medicine in the last few centuries when we begin to use these technologies in earnest. That's Roger Highfield. I'm the science director of the Science Museum Group, and I'm also a member of the UK's Medical Research Council. Roger Highfield is the co-author behind a new book on digital twin technology. It's called Virtual You, How Building Your Digital Twin Will Revolutionize Medicine and Change Your Life. Virtual You is really the first popular book on the potential of digital twins in medicine. And when I say digital twin, I don't mean like in a Hollywood sense where you've got an avatar or something that looks like you. I actually mean we're trying to build a version of you that behaves exactly like your body behaves right the way down to the molecular level. And the reason this is a radical idea is that it makes medicine truly personal and truly predictive. We'll jump into the book and more on how digital twins work in a moment. First, a little on Highfield's background. It starts with chemistry research at the University of Oxford. Later, he was the science editor at the British newspaper The Daily Telegraph for 20 years. And since 2011, he's been the head of a group of five science museums in the United Kingdom. I guess I'm the popularizer in the partnership. And my co-author is Professor Peter Coveney at University College London. And Peter runs several European consortia that are trying to put together the fundamentals of building virtual twins of people. Okay, so back to the digital twins. As Highfield said, the overarching idea at its core is to build a digital copy of a person. 
In other words, to use health data to make a computer simulation of a person. Now, if you've never heard of this, you're not alone. And it's probably because we're not able to create digitized twins of human beings quite yet. But digital twin technology, in and of itself, is pretty well established. According to Highfield, NASA coined the term in 2010, and today they use digital twins in part to simulate space missions. And digital twin technology is used across many other industries as well. A company, for example, can make a digital twin of their factory and then use it to simulate and study what would happen if they change certain processes at a fraction of the cost of carrying out experiments in the real world. The Wall Street Journal recently wrote about how San Francisco International Airport now uses digital twin technology to run its 5,000 acres of space, serving more than 42 million passengers. What they do is they gather data from embedded sensors and other connected devices to create a virtual replica, or twin, of the airport. And this allows them to study performance, make simulations, and even predictions on the various movements within that huge space. Yeah, right. And in his book, Highfield writes that digital twins are being used to create and optimize all kinds of things, like wind turbines, oil rigs, cars, and jet engines. And so, in effect, we're saying, look, hang on. Theory in medicine and data in medicine and computation have reached the point where we can actually apply this thinking to human medicine as well. So today, it's no longer just factories and airports. This is where the digital twins of human beings come into the picture, or what Highfield also refers to as virtual you technology. Ultimately, the authors of the book say that in the coming decades, this new technology will increasingly shape healthcare. We asked Highfield, where does the technology stand today? At the moment, we haven't got an entire virtual person, but we have got lots of subsystems going. For me, maybe the most exciting applications of virtual new technology are with the human heart. You can make a digital twin of a patient's heart. You can use various scanning technologies and measurements to prime a digital version so it behaves like a patient's heart. One team in Oxford under Blanca Rodriguez has been using the digital heart approach to say, well, could this give us more accurate results than testing potential drugs for serious heart side effect on animals, which is done routinely. And the answer is that human digital heart will give you more accurate results in certain circumstances than doing animal trials. And it doesn't even have to be just one heart. Another thing you can do is you can generate virtual populations. And this is something that big regulatory agencies like the FDA are beginning to accept. So let's say you've got an implant, which is like a small pacemaker, you want to put in the wall of the heart. But of course, people's hearts vary a bit from person to person. So what you can do is, with digital heart technology, you can generate a whole spectrum of different heart designs. And you can see whether that implant and the procedure you're going to carry out is safe on all these variants of digital hearts. So although digital twin human medicine sounds very futuristic, there are bits of it that are here right now. And there are lots of other examples I could go through, you know, making digital twins of the immune system, of the way cells respond to viruses, 
There's a team in New Zealand working on lungs, on the digestive system. So there's a lot of virtual digital twin research happening in lots of different areas all over the planet, including the States. One of those places is in Frederick, Maryland. So my name is Eric Stahlberg, and I'm director of Cancer Data Science Initiatives in the Cancer Research Technology Directorate at Frederick National Lab for Cancer Research. The Frederick National Lab is a federally funded cancer research facility. And in 2020, it held an ideas lab focusing on innovations in digital twins for cancer. We had five different groups ultimately come together as a result of that meeting. And they began to envision a cancer patient digital twin that would be able to have an impact within 10 years. Among the initiatives was one from Georgetown University, a simulation of one million digital twins of pancreatic cancer patients. So that particular project is taking information that is collected from the patient in the medical system, and then using that to understand key features that would be indicative of the future behavior response of the patient to different treatments. We asked Stolberg, are cancer patients able to benefit from the digital twin technology right now? It really at that point depends on what it is that you are working to twin. There are researchers at the University of Texas working with MD Anderson, which are building digital twins to look at how the tumors are responding over time to treatment. To the extent that the patient is immediately able to benefit, models are beginning to help the oncologists understand or at least monitor that progression more effectively, which is then feeding additional insight into the oncologists in the decisions that they're making. So in some ways, they are having a benefit from some of the early twinning that is occurring and being developed by the researchers. Stolberg explains that even with the technology being in its early stage, there are several spin-off benefits already. When we develop predictive models, we will find that those predictive models are not perfect. There's going to be many situations where we find the models are going to be inadequate based upon the predictions that we would expect. So then one of the spinoffs is that there's going to be new biological questions asked. Why did this happen? We, the model that we had developed predicted moving in one direction the patient actually moved in a different direction. So how do we understand that? It's going to give us a feedback loop into how new biology and questions that we need to be able to answer. So the digital twin technology doesn't replace any existing diagnosing or treatment planning, but it can provide a benefit in giving doctors and patients more data to work with. In some ways, the model may be an objective second opinion based upon the data that can be there as a companion with the oncologist and as a companion with the patient to help them inform and give confidence, but also where there's perhaps a difference of opinion between the model and the oncologist, probe a little bit more deeply into factors that may be leading to that and either making the the better decision for the patient or providing the feedback that improves the model. To Roger Highfield, a major potential of digital twin technology is that it allows for more risk-taking in medical research. You can do an experiment on a digital twin. You think, maybe this drug may work, may not work. Okay, let's try it out on the digital twin. You know, you can't kill a digital twin. 
You could even run a drug trial of hundreds of different drug types on hundreds of digital twins. Digital twin technology both has the potential of giving insights into the body in the here and now, as well as predicting health outcomes. Highfield calls that health casts. And I think that maybe the way to think about this digital twin technology, in case you think, gosh, this is getting really, it sounds very sci-fi and very futuristic, but actually this sort of technology is here and now, particularly in weather and climate forecasting. You know, there we've got colossal models of the Earth's climate system, and you can think of them as digital twins of the Earth's climate system. They're primed with the latest data. They have to deal with chaos theory, so we, we know that there's a limit to how far in the future you can predict weather. But if you keep on priming your models with the latest satellite data and from weather station data and so on, you can make pretty good predictions about what's going to happen in the near future. So the hope is that supercomputers primed with the latest patient data will be able to make health casts, just like we can make forecasts today. In the longer run, you could even think about the effects of lifestyle on you know, how well a digital twin does. I mean, there are lots of ethical issues. Some of them are very familiar, but some of them will make people think twice about, for example, what do we mean by if I'm healthy? If you feel healthy and your friends say, hey, you look great, but your digital twin says, hey, if you carry on having a tub of ice cream every night, you're gonna have a heart attack in 10 years time, then I guess you're not healthy. So it's gonna pose all sorts of interesting questions about that. We'll get to those ethical questions surrounding digital twin technology in a moment. That's after this quick break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about the potential of using digital twin technology in healthcare. As we heard, the technology is still at somewhat of an early stage. We asked Highfield, what are the biggest roadblocks standing in the way of digital twins becoming part of mainstream medicine? It turns out there are a few. The first that he mentioned was data. We've of course heard a lot about big data, but for this type of technology to work, we need what Highfield calls colossal data. Why? Well, the body is complex. On average, it contains seven octillion atoms. That's, wait for it, 27 zeros. And while we're able to gather more and more data on the body, think of how often people have their blood pressure taken, the body isn't static. Your blood pressure changes constantly. So a lot of measurements we take are just snapshots of what's a very dynamic, system. 
So what we're arguing for in the book is um, biologists often say, look, it's just too complicated to come up with theories and up-to-date data to do these sorts of things. But I, I think what we've shown, particularly with the human heart, is that it is now possible to make quite authentic digital twins of a patient's heart and do some interesting things with them that really does give you an insight into you know, the best way to, to treat that patient. But there's still lots of things that have to be laid down. So one could be getting more patient information and more dynamic information so they're not a snapshot. You know, we've already got a glimpse of what we can do with things like smartphones, gathering data continuously on a patient, the state of your body about your blood pressure, your heart rate, your blood sugar, your insulin, and so on. And one way to get around not having to create all the data that the body contains is using artificial intelligence. That's because AI can help connect the dots so that we don't need to copy every single atom from the body to make a digital twin. AI can help a bit, although I don't want to oversell AI because it's only as good as the data that it's trained on, but you can train AIs to reproduce bits of the way the body works and so on. And then another potential roadblock is computing power, or rather the limits of computing power. You need pretty powerful hardware to manage this digital twin technology. Enter the supercomputer, also known as the exascale computer. These are massive computers the size of a house or even an apartment building. Supercomputers are so powerful that they can quickly analyze massive volumes of data and realistically simulate extremely complex processes. They could accelerate development in clean energy, manufacturing, and as we're talking about in this episode, medical research. We've now got unprecedented computer power. But I have to say, though, we're beginning to bump into limits of the technology. You know, these things take as much energy as a local town to power. They run hot. They use a colossal amount of energy. And so the other thing we talk about in the book is the need for new computational technologies, actually, strange enough, analog computing using light and things like that. And also quantum computers could also be brought to bear on the next generation of virtual you. In spite of those challenges, Highfield is optimistic. The history of supercomputers shows that it might have slowed down a bit, but you know that we're still on a curve going upwards. So I think we can confidently expect to have even more computer power at our disposal in, in 10 years' time. And with more computer power linked with deeper understanding, linked with colossal data, then I think you know virtual you will really come into its own. So with that said, when does Highfield expect the first digital twin of a human being to materialize? There's one very complicated sort of elephant in the room, which of course the human brain is mind-bogglingly complicated. Peter and I are both doubtful that there's enough richness in a digital environment to recapitulate the brain fully. So I think if you said, when are we going to have a kind of virtual human with something that is going a bit of the way down towards a brain and is actually a reasonable copy of someone that is actually usable to look at the reaction of the whole body to certain things, we're probably talking uh, two or three decades down the line. 
Even though that's far into the future, there are a lot of practical questions that come to mind with this new technology. Like, will it make healthcare more expensive or cheaper? Will insurance help pay for it? Those are things we'll have to reconcile with if this technology becomes pervasive. And then, of course, there could be risks involved, too. We asked Eric Stahlberg about that. One of the things that I look at from a biomedical digital twin perspective is that they will be looked at too early with too high of expectations. Because as we all know, cancer is a tremendously formidable opponent, tremendously complex disease. And so the expectation that you would have a model that is fully deterministic is a significant challenge. So making sure that it's back down to the reality and that the models themselves are going to advance as we have the understanding and the science. Roger Highfield also mentioned several challenges associated with the new technology. There are obviously lots of ethical issues, and I think some of them are really familiar. So obviously keeping your data, your virtual you, confidential is sort of a no-brainer. You don't want other people to have access to your virtual you. But in a way, we're already, you know, very hot on the issue of patient confidentiality. There's another issue about inequality. Again, it's a familiar one. The technology haves and the technology have nots. And it could be that when digital twin technology becomes more widespread in medicine, it might not be accessible to everybody and it could widen the gap between rich and poor. Highfield says that getting health information on your own body, including predictions of health outcomes, could also radically change what we view as being healthy. It's one thing to have a public health message saying don't smoke and don't drink too much or whatever. But if you can actually take someone's digital twin and say, right, here's virtual use, but they were drinking low alcohol beer and gave up cigarettes, and here's virtual use, and they're on a bottle of bourbon and five cigars a day and compare them, it might have a much more dramatic effect in the way people behave. It will change the way we think about what's normal and what's healthy and if I'm healthy now. So I think there will be a lot of issues there. Digital twin technology for healthcare presents another layer to a well-known dilemma in medicine. Do you always want to know what the future holds? What if your digital twin tells you things about your health and by extension your longevity that, well, you'd prefer not to know? I think always my answer to that question is, you know, we have to be responsive about the use of technology. It's down to you whether you want to use it. Of course, I think we have to go into the era of human digital twins with our eyes open. But I would rather have the potential to make a virtual version of me available if I so choose. But you're absolutely right. Some people will never want to flick the switch to animate their virtual you, and they'd rather live in ignorance. And that's their choice. They have a choice. So I think that's the key thing. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney@marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. 
And I'm Charles Passy. Thanks to Roger Highfield and Eric Stahlberg. For more news on innovation in healthcare, head to marketwatch.com. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Katie Ferguson, and Meta Lutzhoff, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Stephen Kutz was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.